Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, December 24th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing demand for a permanent seat uh, for Africa on the United Nations Security Council. Kenya uh, has announced that the country will ship food assistance to nearby Republic of South Sudan. South Africa is celebrating the festive season amid ongoing problems with energy supply. And in the aftermath of the U.S.-Africa Summit, an editorial in the Ethiopian state media raises serious questions about the approach of Washington to the continent's leaders. In the second hour, we look back on the 55th anniversary of the historic mass lectures delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in late 1967. We also listen uh, to the acceptance speech uh, by the re-elected African National Congress President Cyril Ramaphosa at the conclusion of the 55th National Elective Conference in the Republic of South Africa. Finally, we hear the UN briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the status of public health in the African Union member states. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Right now, we'll take our musical interlude with the both Boziana and the anti-shock. Let's listen in. Mi a esta semilla, otra la en la pesca. 
Oh, don't give me more time. 
welcome back. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we just heard uh, the music uh, of uh, Bozi, Boziana and the Anti-Shock Orchestra, uh, music from uh, Congo, classic Congolese music, uh, also featuring, uh, in addition to uh, Bozi, Boziana, uh, Jolie Geta, uh, another legendary uh, Congolese vocalist uh, from that same period. And uh, right now we want to move on into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, our lead story uh, deals uh, with the ongoing struggle uh, of the African Union member states to gain a permanent seat on the United Nations uh, Security Council, according to an editorial uh, that was published uh, in uh, the Ethiopian Herald newspaper. It is an indisputable fact that as no African country is a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, most African leaders at all hours of the day and night have been calling for a permanent seat. As the existing circumstances on the ground are nothing less than historical injustice, Africa at the earliest possible juncture must have due representation in the Security Council. The unfair representation of Africa in the Council for long has been drawing sharp condemnation from an extensive range of African leaders, uh, regardless of the fact that they requested quite a lot of times uh, for the continent of Africa to have at least two seats as permanent members in the United Nations Security Council. The desired destination has not been accomplished yet. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Also in East Africa, Kenya's President William Ruto has expressed concern over the fighting in neighboring South Sudan and airlifted a donation of foodstuffs uh, to those Affected the South Sudan's northern Upper Nile and Jongle states are experiencing renewed fighting between rival armed militias. The fighting has threatened the implementation of the 2018 peace agreement between President Salva Kiir and his former rival Raif Machar. Ruto said he spoke to Kiir uh, earlier today and urged him to facilitate dialogue for all involved parties to stop the fighting. Kenya also. Uh, has asked the international community to intervene and help in the growing instability in South Sudan. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, in Johannesburg, uh, Republic of South Africa, Christmas lights twinkle, holiday music plays, and Johannesburg's popular Rosebank Mall bustles with shoppers. Then the lights go out. The shops are pitch dark. Hold on to your wallets, calls out a customer to rueful chuckles. A long minute later, the distant hum of a generator can be heard. The lights and music flicker back on and clerks resume ringing up purchases. South Africa's Christmas 2022 is a start-stop affair, with the country's nationwide power cuts hitting just about every aspect of the holiday. Businesses and families are coping with rolling outages of electricity totaling seven to 10 hours per day. And we'll have more information on the situation in South Africa uh, involving the uh, conclusion of the ruling party, uh, African National Congress National Elective Conference, which took place uh, last weekend. 
And uh, finally, uh, in uh, the Zimbabwe Herald, uh, the U.S. African Leader Summit held this past week is widely seen as America's attempt to counter the influence of China on the continent. Over the past two decades, China has grown strong, uh, fruitful and mutually beneficial relationships with African countries. China has invested in the development of infrastructure, promoted trade, and assisted countries during the deadly COVID-19 pandemic. China's approach uh, to its relations with Africa is based on multilateralism and equality of nations. Its signature of cooperation frameworks such as the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, the Belt and Road Initiative, and lately the Global Security Initiative are driven by recognition of sovereign equality of nations and mutual respect. The Asian giant does not seek to dominate other countries or impose itself as the new hegemon. Neither does it interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. China fosters peaceful development and plays a unifying role with other developing nations of the world. Naturally, this has won China many friends globally, and in particular in Africa. So successful has been China's policy that even among younger Africans, it is viewed more favorably than the United States. In this regard, the U.S., known for its interfering policies, unilateralism, imposition of sanctions, coercion, and building of walls of intolerance, has lost considerable ground to the People's Republic of China. In seeking to recover lost ground, the U.S. has set a strategy that seeks to emasculate China in Africa and entice African leadership. Hence, the discourses around the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit have been, on one hand, an attempt to lecture Africans on who its partners of choice should be, and on the other hand, splurging lawfully promises of money. U.S. officials have attempted to smear Chinese friendship with Africa, but claims that China is not always transparent, and its relationship and assistance will be eventually destabilizing. Africa does not need these lectures. Africans know what is good for them. Besides, the U.S. record of warmongering, domineering, destabilization, and interference is well known from Libya in the north to Zimbabwe in the south. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service that is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And uh, if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, uh, and that is at... Uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com uh, that's panafricannews.blogspot.com and uh, in, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal this special this uh, worldwide radio broadcast all you need to do is go uh, to our website and that is at the Pan-African Radio Network and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, these um, programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out 
to other potential listeners. Uh, it can also be shared via uh, posting the links on other uh, blogs and websites, as well through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I'm your host, Abayomi Azikwe. We'll be back. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, <clears throat> worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, December 24th, uh, 2022. And uh, 55 years ago, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., just uh, four months uh, prior to his assassination, delivered a series of lectures over the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, known as the Annual Massey Lectures. And in these lectures, King lays out his vision and uh, programmatic uh, probing uh, in regard to where the struggle of African Americans and the movement in general in the United States was heading as of 1967 and early 1968. Let's listen to the first of the Massey lectures uh, from uh, December of 1967 over uh, the CBC. Just as the storming of the Bastille in 1789 was a French mass's symbolic assault against absolutism. The riots are an early warning to white America that patience has run out. Ideas presents Dr. Martin Luther King in the first of five Massey Lectures for 1967. Unlike its predecessors, this year's lectures are by a man who is noted at least as much for his part in making history as for his analytic abilities. In tonight's talk, Dr. King discusses the relative merits of violent and nonviolent approaches to racial problems. Dr. Martin Luther King. It is a deep personal privilege to address a nationwide Canadian audience. Over and above any kinship of United States citizens and Canadians as North Americans, 
That is a singular historical relationship between American Negroes and Canadians. Canada is not merely a neighbor to Negroes. Deep in our history of struggle for freedom, Canada was a North Star. The Negro slave denied education, dehumanized and imprisoned on curl plantations, knew that far to the north a land existed where a fugitive slave, if he survived the horrors of the journey, could find freedom. The legendary Underground Railroad started in the south and ended in Canada. The Freedom Road links us together. Our spirituals, now so widely admired around the world, were often codes. We sang of heaven that awaited us, and the slave masters listened in innocence, not realizing that we were not speaking of the hereafter. Heaven was a word for Canada, and the Negro sang of the hope that his escape on the Underground Railroad would carry him there. And so standing today in Canada, I am linked with the history of my people and its unity with your past. The Underground Railroad could not bring freedom to many Negroes, yet it did something far greater. It symbolized a hope when freedom was almost an impossible dream. Our spirit never died, even though the weight of centuries was a crushing burden. Our freedom was not won a century ago. It is not won today, but some small part of it is in our hands, and we are marching no longer by ones and twos, but in legions of thousands, convinced now that it cannot be denied by any human force. Today the question is not whether we shall be free, but by what course we will win. In the recent past, our struggle has had two phases. The first phase began in the early 50s, when Negroes slammed the door shut on submission and subservience. Adapting nonviolent resistance to conditions in the United States, we swept into southern streets to demand our citizenship and manhood. For the South, with its complex system of brutal segregation, we were inaugurating a rebellion. Merely to march in public streets was to rock the status quo to its roots, boycotting buses in Montgomery, demonstrating in Birmingham the citadel of segregation, and defying guns, dogs, and clubs in Selma, while maintaining disciplined nonviolence, totally confused the rulers of the South. If they let us march, they admitted their lie that the black man was content. If they shot us down, they told the world they were inhuman brutes. They tried to stop us by threats and fears, the tactic that had long worked so effectively. But nonviolence had muzzled their guns, and Negro defiance had shaken their confidence. When they finally reached for clubs, dogs, and guns, 
they found the world was watching, and then the power of nonviolent protest became manifest. It dramatized the essential meaning of the conflict, and in magnified strokes made clear who was the evildoer and who was the undeserving victim. The nation and the world were sickened, and through national legislation wiped out a thousand southern laws, ripping gaping holes in the edifice of segregation. These were days of luminous victories. Negroes and whites collaborated for human dignity. But there was a limitation to our achievements. Negroes were outraged by inequality. Their ultimate goal was freedom. Most of the white majority were outraged by brutality. Their goal was improvement, not freedom or equality. When Negroes could use public facilities, register and vote in some areas of the South, and find token educational advancement, again in token form, find new areas of employment, it brought to the Negro a sense of achievement, but it brought to the whites a sense of completion. When Negroes assertively moved on to ascend the second rung of the ladder, a firm resistance from the white community developed. This resistance characterized the second phase which we are now experiencing. The arresting of the limited forward progress by white resistance revealed the latent racism which was deeply rooted in United States society. Everyone underestimated the amount of bigotry the white majority was disguising and the amount of violence and rage Negroes were suppressing. Nonviolence as a protest form came under attack as a tactical theory, and all the Negroes expressed their dismay and hostility in a succession of riots. The riots are now in the center of the stage and are being offered as basis for contradictory positions by whites and Negroes. Some Negroes argue they are the incipient forms for rebellion and guerrilla tactics that will be the feature of the Negro revolt. They are represented as the new stage of Negro struggle, replacing the old and allegedly outworn tactic of nonviolent resistance. At the same time, some white forces are using riots as evidence that Negroes have no capacity for constructive change, and in their lawless behavior forfeit all rights and justify any form of repressive measures. I would like to examine both questions. Is the guilt for riots exclusively that of Negroes, and are they a natural development to a new stage of struggle? A million words will be written and spoken to dissect the ghetto outbreaks, but for a perceptive and vivid expression of culpability, I would submit two sentences written a century ago by Victor Hugo. If the soul is left in darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, 
but he who causes the darkness. The policymakers of the white society have caused the darkness. They created discrimination. They created slums. They perpetuate unemployment and poverty. It is incontestable and deplorable that Negroes have committed crimes, but they are derivative crimes. They are born of the greater crimes of the white society. When we ask Negroes to abide by the law, let us also declare that the white man does not abide by law in the ghettos. Day in and day out, he violates welfare laws to deprive the poor of their meager allotments. He flagrantly violates building codes and regulations. His police make a mockery of law. He violates laws on equal employment and education. The slums are the handiwork of a vicious system of the white society. Negroes live in them, but they do not make them any more than a prisoner makes a prison. Let us say it forthrightly, that if the total slum violations of law by the white man over the years were calculated and compared with the law-breaking of a few days of riots, the hardened criminal would be the white man. In using the term white man, I am seeking to describe in general terms the Negro's adversary. It is not meant to encompass all white people. There are millions who have morally risen above prevailing prejudices. They are willing to share power and to accept structural alterations of society, even at the cost of traditional privilege. To deny that existence, as some ultra-nationalists do, is to deny an evident truth. It is not the race per se that we fight, but the policies and ideology formulated by leaders of that race to perpetuate oppression. To some of the general causes of riots, we would have to say that the white power structure is still seeking to keep the walls of segregation and inequality substantially intact, while Negro determination to break through them has intensified. The irony is that the white society ruefully complains that if there were no chaos, great changes would come, yet it creates the circumstances breeding the chaos. Within the general cause of riots, it is possible to identify five specific elements. The white backlash is a primary cause because it explains the ferocity of the emotional content of the outbursts and their spontaneity. Negroes have endured insults and humiliation for decades and centuries. But in the past ten years, a growing sensitivity in the white community was a gratifying indication of progress. The depravity of the white backlash shattered the hope that new attitudes were in the making. The reversion to barbaric white conduct marked by a succession of murders in the South the recrudescence of white hoodlumism in northern cities, 
and coldly systematic withdrawal of support by some erstwhile white allies constituted a grim statement to Negroes. They were told there were firm limits to their progress, that they must expect to remain permanently unequal and permanently poor. The pervasiveness of discriminatory practices is so taken for granted that its provocative effect is easily forgotten, that are generational differences among Negroes. The older generation has substantially inured itself to daily insults, but a younger generation has a lower threshold of tolerance. An agonizing discrimination cuts off too large a part of their life to be endured in silence and apathy. Even when a Negro manages to grasp a foothold on the economic ladder, discrimination remains to push him off after he has ascended a few rungs. It hounds him at every level to stultify his initiative and insult his being. For the pitifully few who climb into economic security, it persists and closes different doors to them. Intimately related to discrimination is one of its worst consequences, unemployment. The United States teetered on the edge of revolution in the 1930s when unemployment ranged up to 25%. Today, in the midst of historic prosperity, unemployment for Negro youth, according to government figures, runs as high as 30 to 40% in many cities. With most of their lives yet to live, the slamming of doors in their faces can be expected to induce rage and rebellion. The fourth cause is the war in Vietnam. Negroes are conscripted in double measure for combat. They constitute more than 20% of the front-line troops in a war of unprecedented brutality, although their proportion in the population is 10%. They are marching under slogans of democracy to defend a Saigon government that scorns democracy. At home, they know that is no genuine democracy for their people, and on their return, they will be restored to a grim life as second-class citizens, even if they are bedecked with heroes' medals. Finally, a complex of causes is found in the degenerating conditions of urban life. The cities are choked with polluted air, dense traffic, and insufficient water. Public facilities are outworn and inadequate. Within this chaos of neglect, Negroes are stifled at the very bottom in slums so squalid that their equal is not to be found in any other industrial nation of the world. Most of the largest cities are victims of the large migration of Negroes. Although it was well known that millions of Negroes would be forced off the land in the South by the contraction of agricultural employment during the past two decades, no national planning was done to provide remedies. When white immigrants arrived in the United States in the late 19th century, 
a beneficent government gave them free land and credit to build a useful independent life. In contrast, when the Negro migrated, he was left to his own resources. He crowded the cities and was herded into ghettos. Left in unemployment are subjected to gross exploitation within a context of searing discrimination. Though other minorities had encountered obstacles, none was so brutally scorned nor so consistently denied opportunities as the Negro. All of these conditions were the fuel for violence and riots. As a social psychologist, Kenneth Clark, has said, it is a surprise only that outbreaks were not experienced earlier that a thoughtful social scientist who are now acknowledging that the elements of social catastrophe have accumulated in such vast array that no remedies may be available. I am not sanguine, but I am not ready to accept defeat. I believe that are several programs that can reverse the tide of social disintegration and beyond that, I believe that destructive as the riots may be, they have been analyzed substantially in a one-sided fashion. That is a striking aspect to the violence of riots that has stimulated little comment and even less analysis. In all of the riots taken together, the property damage reached colossal proportions exceeding a billion dollars. Yet the physical injury inflicted by Negroes upon white people was inconsequential in comparison. The bruising edge of the weapon of violence in Negro hands was employed almost exclusively against property, not persons. It is noteworthy that many distinguished periodicals and leaders of the white community even while the conflict raged, in clear terms accepted the responsibility for neglect, evasion, and centuries of injustice. They did not seek to fasten exclusive culpability on the Negro. They asked for action and a facing up to the need for drastic social reformation. It is true that not all were motivated by morality, the crisis of Negro aspirations intersects with the urban crisis. Some white liberals may not be moved by humanity to save Negroes, but they are moved by self-interest to save their cities. But even their moral and selfish motives, which merge toward a constructive end, have not yet made government act. It is preoccupied with war and is determined to husband every resource for military adventures rather than social reconstruction. Negroes must therefore not only formulate a program, but they must fashion new tactics which do not count on government goodwill, but instead serve to compel unwilling authorities to yield to the mandates of justice. We are demanding an emergency program to provide employment for everyone in need of a job.
or if a work program is impractical, a guaranteed annual income at levels that sustain life in decent circumstances. It is now incontestable that the wealth and resources of the United States make the elimination of poverty absolutely practical. A second feature of our program is the demolition of slums and rebuilding by the population that live in them. There is scarcely any division among Negroes about these measures. Divisions arise only around methods for that achievement. I am still convinced that a solution of nonviolence remains possible. However, nonviolence must be adapted to urban conditions and urban moods. The effectiveness of street marches in cities is limited because the normal turbulence of city life absorbs them as mere transitory drama quite common in the ordinary movement of masses. In the South, a march was a social earthquake. In the North, it is a faint, brief exclamation of protest. Nonviolent protest must now mature to a new level to correspond to heightened black impatience and stiffen white resistance. This higher level is mass civil disobedience. There must be more than a statement to the larger society. There must be a force that interrupts its functioning at some key point. That interruption must, however, not be clandestine or surreptitious. It is not necessary to invest it with guerrilla romanticism. It must be open and, above all, conducted by large masses without violence. If the jails are filled to thwart it, the meaning will become even clearer. The Negro will be saying, I am not avoiding penalties for breaking the law. I am willing to endure all your punishment because your society will not be able to endure the stigma of violently and publicly oppressing its minority to preserve injustice. Mass civil disobedience as a new stage of struggle can transmute the deep rage of the ghetto into a creative force. To dislocate the functioning of a city without destroying it can be more effective than a riot because it can be longer-lasting, costly to the larger society, but not wantonly destructive. Finally, it is a device of social action that is more difficult for the government to quell by superior force. The limitation of riots, moral questions aside, is that they cannot win, and their participants know it. Hence, it is not revolutionary, but reactionary, because it invites defeat. It involves an emotional catharsis, but it must be followed by a sense of futility. Where does the future point? The character of the next period is being determined by the response of the white decision-makers to this crisis. It is a harsh indictment, but it is an inescapable conclusion 
that Congress is not horrified with the conditions of Negro life, but with the product of these conditions, the Negro himself. It could, by a single massive act of concern, expressed in a multi-billion dollar program to modernize and humanize Negro communities, do more to obviate violence than could be done by all the armies at its command. Whether it will summon the wisdom to do it is the question of the hour. It is a shattering historical irony that the American Revolution of 1776 was a consequence of many of the same conditions that prevail today. King George adamantly refused to share power even in modest degree with the colonies. He provoked violence by scorning appeals embodied in nonviolent protests, such as boycotts, peaceful demonstrations, and petitions. In their resort to violence, the colonists were pressed ideologically beyond their original demands and put into question the system of absolute monarchical rule. When they took up arms and searched for the rationale for independence, they broke with all traditions of imperial domination and established a unique and unprecedented form of government, the democratic republic. The Negro revolt, too, is evolving. Now it is more than a quest for desegregation and equality. It faces a system that has created miracles of production and technology and challenges it to create justice. If humanism is locked outside of the system, Negroes will have revealed its inner court of despotism and a far greater struggle for liberation will unfold. The United States is substantially challenged to demonstrate that it can abolish not only the evils of racism, but the tragedy of poverty of whites as well as Negroes, and above all, the horrors of war that transcend the national borders and involve all of mankind. The first man to die in the American Revolution was a Negro seaman, Crispus Attucks. Before that fateful struggle ended, the institution of absolute monarchy was put on its deathbed. We may now only be in the initial period of an era of change as far-reaching in its consequences as the American Revolution. The developed industrial nations of the world, which include Canada as much as the United States, cannot remain secure islands of prosperity in a seething sea of poverty. A storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth from which that is no sheltered in isolation or armament. The storm will not abate until a just distribution of the fruits of the earth enables man everywhere to live in dignity and human decency. The American Negro of 1967, like Crispus Attucks, may be the vanguard in a prolonged struggle 
that may change the shape of the world as billions of deprived shake and transform the earth in their quest for life, freedom, and justice. That was Dr. Martin Luther King in the first of this year's Massey Lectures. Next week, he discusses the war in Vietnam. Tonight's program was produced by Janet Somerville and Del McKenzie. Stay tuned now for The Best of Ideas, Part 2, which follows the news over most of the CBC stations. Ken Haslam speaking. This is the CBC Radio Network. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the first installment of the historic uh, Massey Lectures delivered uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, in late 1967, some 55 years ago. Interestingly enough, uh, many of the questions he raised in 1967, uh, just four months uh, prior to his assassination, are still relevant today in 2022, on the eve of 2023 in the United States and indeed internationally. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Yeah. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers uh, with the track entitled One Drop from uh, the classic uh, album uh, from 1979, Survival. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, December 24th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Just this last past Tuesday, uh, there was the conclusion of the African National Congress National Elective Conference, the 55th of such gatherings. And, of course, uh, the existing president of the Republic of South Africa and president of the African National Congress, Cyril Ramaphosa, was reelected uh, to continue uh, leading the party for another five years and also to stand uh, as the presidential candidate uh, during the elections in 2024. This is the acceptance speech uh, as it unfolded uh, on uh, Tuesday uh, in uh, the Republic of South Africa in Johannesburg at Nazarek. Uh, let's listen in. Manda! Viva ANC! Viva! Viva South African Communist Party! Viva! Viva! I just want to come and say I love my president. Tia Matamela! Tia! Second term, Matamela! Second term! I love you, President. <laughs> if you were not a man, I would say I love you too. Viva Kosatu, viva! Malibongwe! Malibongwe! Ika Malama Kosgar! Raw, young lions, raw! Manda, National Chairperson Gwede Samson Mantashe, <laughs> Deputy President Paul Mashatile, Secretary General Fiki Lembalula, First Deputy Secretary General Nombula Mukonyani, Second Deputy Secretary General Marupini Ramukopa, Treasurer General Dr. Gwen Ramukopa, Former President Tabombeki, I hear Former President Jacob Zuma is not here, but I extend my greetings to him as well. Former Deputy President Kalema Mutante, Isitwala Andwe, Mama Sophie DeBrain, members of the yet to be announced of the newly elected National Executive Committee, who still don't know whether they have joined the NEC or not. Veterans of our movement who have been with us since the beginning 
of this conference, leaders of the Women's League, the Youth League, the Veterans League, members of the Electoral Committee who possibly are not here with us because they are busy, representatives of the Alliance, as in the SACP and COSATU and their leaders, fraternal parties who are from our continent and region, and indeed our international guests who have also graced this conference with their presence from the beginning, observers, distinguished guests, delegates, members of the media, and our choir who are sitting right in front here. We've come to the end of the first part of our 55th ANC National Conference. As you heard, the steering committee has decided and you've approved and decided as conference to accept the proposal from the steering committee that we should adjourn and not end, but adjourn this conference and to continue our work on the 5th of January. This is not unusual. We've held a number of conferences throughout the country that were part held and adjourned for finalization at a later stage. And the reasons have been set out very clearly and put before us, and I'd like to thank conference for agreeing that we should adjourn this conference to the 5th of January. Thank you very much for that. Conference, as it rises again on the 5th of January, will then be followed by the celebration of the 111th anniversary of the ANC, on the 8th of January in Mangaung in the Free State in 2023. Comrades, this conference has in many ways proven to be a watershed moment in the life and the history of our movement. At this conference, through the discussions that we have held both in plenary as well as in our commissions. The discussions have been robust and at times they have been quite loud and noisy, but they have always sought to unite all of us. And through our deliberations at this conference, we have chosen the path of renewal to rebuild our movement and to restore the values that have been handed down the ages and the years by our forebears. And the path of principled unity is what we have also upheld in the finest traditions of the African National Congress. We came from different provinces different branches, 
holding different views and indeed different mandates of who needs to be chosen to lead this organization. We also came with different proposals on the policies that should be pursued, but as always, we've ended up as a united organization, much to the surprise of those who don't wish us well. There have, yes, been attempts to divide us, to provoke us and to divert us from the task that we must undertake in advancing our national democratic revolution. There have been moments at this conference that have tested our unity and cohesion. But I can testify to the fact that this conference is going to continue solidifying our unity and our cohesion as the African National Congress. And thanks to the political consciousness and for the most part the discipline amongst yourselves as delegates in that whatever differences amongst us that we may have had, these did not distract us from the critical work that the people of this country expect and require of us. The branches have spoken by choosing the leadership that will emerge from here. That is the way of democracy in the African National Congress. And once the branches have made their choice, all of us are expected to fall in line and embrace and accept the decisions that have been taken here. And indeed, it is the ANC that has spoken. The strong democratic tradition that underpins the founding of our movement has been victorious once again. During our expansive discussions that started in our branches, in our policy conference, and that continued in the commissions we, that we had, we have defined the actions that we must take to confront the challenges of the present moment and the challenges that we are bound to face in the future. On the 8th of January 1959, the great revolutionary Fidel Castro gave a rousing speech on his arrival in Havana following the victory of the Cuban Revolution. Addressing the Cuban masses, he said, the people are greatly affected by whether we are going to make a good job of this revolution or if we are going to make the same mistakes as in the last revolution or the one before that or even the one before that one. And he continued, and so we will suffer the consequences of our mistakes since there are no mistakes which do not affect the people and no political mistake which does not have 
to be paid for sooner or later. As the African National Congress, we have made mistakes and we've made, had some missteps and we have paid for them in many, many ways. But even having found ourselves on the brink, we have been able to pull ourselves back. And we have been able to come back from where many people thought we would stumble and fall forever. Because we know there is no greater task yet to be fulfilled and that task is building a better South Africa that leaves no one behind. This conference has reaffirmed that purpose and that mission. There is no other reason for the existence of the African National Congress than to unite, to mobilize and more principally to serve the people of South Africa. That is what the ANC exists for. And let us be clear that there's no other reason for us to join the ANC and there's no other reason for us to seek or accept election to positions of leadership within its ranks other than to serve the people of this country. Consistent with this mission, the delegates to this conference have discussed proposals that will accelerate radical social and economic transformation. The deliberations and the conclusions from our policy conference have placed the needs and the interests of our people first, especially the working class and the poor. We have outlined the steps that we must take to build an economy that serves all South Africans and an economy that bridges the huge gap between wealth and poverty between privilege and disadvantage, between black and white, and between men and women. We have agreed to consider a combination of measures which could include a number of interventions that need to be made to grow our economy, including incentives, tax rebates, and a compact with the private sector, to accelerate the growth of our economy and also to speed up infrastructure rollout in a much bigger way than we have in the recent past. We've also decided that we will embark on a number of other interventions to ensure that our rural areas and our townships become areas of economic activity. We are committed to supporting the economic development, yes, of our rural areas through, amongst other things, working together with our traditional leaders to implement the Invest Rural Master Plan. This conference has expressed impatience at the pace of change and has given our deployees in government in Parliament and in legislatures 
and across society and instructions to act with extraordinary effort, extraordinary urgency and purpose to implement the proposals that have been emerging in our commissions, which will also be confirmed when we meet again on the 5th of January. The, this conference sets out the path to a society in which every child receives a quality education and in which every person has access to health care regardless of the ability to pay. In other words, it is quite clear that the decisions that we have taken in the past to implement the national health insurance have to be speeded up and have to be implemented without any fail. Our deliberations also set out the path towards comprehensive and sustainable social protection and to the provision of, yes, affordable housing and basic services for all. We realized more clearly that the failure of basic services in various parts of our, of our country have increased the lack of confidence that our people have in the African National Congress. And that is why this conference, having deliberated on this, will finalize its decisions in January that we must pay attention to service delivery and quality service delivery to be delivered to our people throughout the country. We have also deliberated on the actions that we must take to once and for all redress the original sin of land dispossession. We have agreed on a number of measures which will be confirmed to accelerate land reform and to provide support for the productive use of the land. We undertake land reform not only because justice demands it, but because it is necessary or rather a necessary condition for the growth of an inclusive economy that can realize the potential of our plentiful natural resources and the capabilities of our people. This conference has also had thoroughgoing discussions on the safety and security of the people of our country. We have outlined steps to further strengthen our police service and other law enforcement agencies to improve the effectiveness of our criminal justice system and to improve the security of our borders as well. We have reaffirmed that ours must be a police service and not a police force. And we have agreed to overhaul and harmonize our immigration laws to meet the new challenges facing our country. Crime is a problem of society and requires mobilization of all social formations, 
all communities and all individuals in a sustained effort to end it. We must strengthen community policing forums and coordinate more effectively the work of businesses, trade unions, community-based organizations, traditional leaders, women's organizations, youth formations, and faith-based organizations as well. To also be involved in the effort to fight crime. We must mobilize all these formations to be an integral part also of the fight against gender-based violence and femicide. This conference has, through the various discussions, provided guidance on the strengthening of the National Strategic Plan on Gender-Based Violence and Femicide and provided clear direction to our structures and to our deployees in government on further steps that need to be taken to end this pandemic of gender-based violence and femicide. Delegates have said that the future of our country demands that we prioritize the development and empowerment of the young people of our country. In addition to the work already underway, we need to ensure equal access to high and tertiary education and should establish more Tibet colleges and technical high schools and should also be establishing more universities in various parts of the country. This conference has reiterated our commitment to a better Africa and a better world. And the steps that will need to be taken will be further elaborated as we receive the reports of the commissions in January. This 55th conference has placed the position of women, both within the ANC and in society, firmly on the center of our national ele election. We must welcome the fact that three of the top seven officials elected by yourselves are women. Now, this is great progress, but it is not enough. I am not entirely happy that we have still got much fewer women attending conference as delegates. We need to improve on that and have equal number of men and women in our conferences. We should not rest until we have achieved full equality in all our structures of our movement, equality in terms of representation or participation, and also of opportunity. Comrades, this is something that we need to focus our attention on more closely. That as we set up structures, and even as delegates come to conference, this is an area that we need to watch more closely so that the equality that we speak of
must be practiced, firstly by the African National Congress. Our discussions at this 55th conference have taken a firm stance against corruption as well. We have recognized that corruption within the ANC is indeed a dire threat to the continued existence of our organization and to the future of the National Democratic Revolution. We have recognized the great progress that has been made over the last five years in tackling corruption within our ranks, within the state and across society. But we have also acknowledged that we have not done enough to end corruption, to reverse the effects of state capture and to deal with the corrosive effects of the ANC and institutions across society. We have said that government should consider establishing a vibrant and independent anti-corruption agency as a structure to address issues of corruption across the country. And this has largely been welcomed by people in our country. We have stated our determination at this conference to take all necessary steps to address this problem. We know from our recent experience that such actions can be difficult and they can also be painful. We know that these actions may be met with opposition and that they may increase discord within our own structures. But as this conference in the deliberations that we've had has recognized we have no choice. We either deal with this problem or we perish as an organization. While this 55th conference has paid great attention to the difficulties that confront our nation today, it has also taken time to look towards the future. Our discussions on the Vision 2023 presented here have positioned the ANC as the movement of tomorrow. We have anticipated and are anticipating how our society and our world will change and uh, we have taken time to envision the organization that will be required to organize and to advance and to thrive in those circumstances of the future. We are not content to merely observe change that will unfold. This vision 2032 is taking us along a route of setting out a roadmap through which we will contribute to the direction and the pace of social and economic change. This roadmap will outline the work that we must undertake starting now to make the ANC an ever more effective agent of fundamental transformation. Five years ago in this very hall, we set out on a journey of rebuilding, of reuniting and renewing our country. There's a delegate who was present at the 54th conference from the Free State, 
Soon after we were elected, he ran up to the stage and stood here and said very loudly and clearly to me that, President, we want you to unite the African National Congress. That delegate is here again today, and he has expressed that same wish again, that President focus on uniting the African National Congress. And that is precisely what I see my task as, as President of the African National Congress, to unite this organization. Since 2017, it has been a difficult journey. We have encountered many challenges in seeking to forge this unity. At times, we have met fierce resistance. We made a number of errors along the way, but we have remained true to the course of the restoration of our movement. This 55th National Conference has confirmed that we are on the right path, but more than that, this conference has made a clear call for greater urgency and greater action, particularly in uniting and renewing the African National Congress. The delegates, as all of you have convened here, you view the ANC as an organization that must be renewed, yes, and must be united. We need, as we move on, to resolve a number of challenges that confront our country, but we also know that we can only confront those challenges if we are a united organization. If the ANC is divided, it will never be able to unite the people of South Africa. If the ANC is divided, it will never be able to build an economy that can create jobs. We need, yes, to act with resolve, to ensure that we address the turmoil, for instance, of load shedding that is taking our economy backwards. We also need to remove the obstacles to foster economic growth and job creation. We need to act against those public representatives and officials who are delaying vital reforms that we need to build, to take to build a thriving economy. We need to fix our schools and our hospitals, our roads and our water infrastructure. Yes, we need to close those potholes even as the Secretary General is now moving to a new position from his position as Minister of Transport where he's been seeking to close potholes. We need to also employ people because they are competent, because they are committed, not because they are connected to other people. We need to professionalize the public service and the patronage that may have existed in the past should come to an end. People must be appointed because they have 
the ability, the capability of serving our people. And that must be the standard. And we must show no mercy to those who steal money from the poor, whoever they are and wherever they are. This is the definitive mandate that I have seen and heard emerging from discussions at this conference. And we are bound by our commitment to the ANC and to the people of South Africa to fulfill that responsibility. As we have come to the, first, the end of the first part of this conference, as we adjourn this conference and will hold the second and last part in January on a hybrid fashion, we return to our provinces, to our branches, filled with the commitment that indeed the African National Congress must continue to serve the people of our country. And I'd like to wish, I want to thank those who have done a great deal of work to make this conference possible. It isn't often easy to have a conference of more than 4,600 people. Those who have committed time and effort, and I know that many people have not slept for hours. I want to thank them. I want to thank the electoral committee who also have not slept for hours, making sure that the election process at this conference proceeds well. The technical staff, the marshals, the security officials, and the many service providers, but I also want to thank the donors who contributed to ensure or enable this conference to happen. I wish to thank the media for their coverage of this conference. I got to hear that there were up to 900 media representatives, completely unprecedented to have so many from all over the world. And I wish to thank them for their coverage of this conference, ensuring that all South Africans have an opportunity to follow the proceedings of this very important event in the life of our country. And I wish to thank our Alliance partners, representatives of civil society who have been present here and guests from fraternal organizations and from the international community and from the diplomatic corps who've been with us over the past five days. I wish to thank all branch members whose wishes and aspirations have been represented here. For many months throughout the country, tens of thousands of ANC members have been meeting in preparation for this conference. They have elected their delegates, nominated their leadership candidates, and conducted extensive discussions on the policy priorities of our organization. In doing so, they have participated in a historic democratic process that is more extensive, more vibrant, and more thorough than that of any other political formation in our country. There is none that gets close 
to the processes that we go through in the African National Congress, Aiko Efanane ANC. Lastly, I wish to thank you, the delegates, for having so diligent, diligently rather represented the mandate of your branches and your structures. And as we went through many Lizema campaigns, I kept saying that to our branch members that they must choose delegates who will, when they come to national conference, stay in conference, not go around partying all over, represent their branches. And I am able to say you all have done exactly that. And thank you very much. And I wish to thank you for having, and congratulate you as well, for having placed our movement firmly on the path of fundamental renewal and rebuilding. Returning to Comrade Fidel Castro's 1959 victory speech, he asked the gathered revolutionaries what they expected to achieve. And he asked, what is just ambition and a desire to command. Was it to take over the reins of power just to be able to drive around in limousines to own mansions or to live like kings, he asked, or was it about self-sacrifice, about being willing to give up all and receive nothing in return? Was it about being ready to give up everything and continue on the austere path of the genuine revolutionary? As a movement, we have at many points in recent times had to ask similar questions of ourselves. What we hoped to achieve at this 55th conference was to unite our movement, to give momentum to the process of renewal, and to recommit ourselves to serving the people of South Africa. That is what we have done. We are emerging stronger as the ANC, but we know that our work is far from done. Now, more than ever, history demands that each one of us demonstrates that the unity and the renewal of our movement is indeed an imperative. This should give us that sense of duty to serve our people, our country, with no expectation of anything in return, but to earn the confidence and the trust of our people. So this national conference has affirmed what the people of this country believe and desire that the ANC must be united, it must be renewed. They also have a deep desire that the ANC should continue living and that the ANC should continue leading. That is what our people desire. Thank you very much. Go well. Homeward. Amanda. Amanda. Thank you, comrades.
Welcome back. That was uh, the acceptance speech uh, by President Cyril Ramaphosa of uh, the African National Congress, the ruling party of the Republic of South Africa. That speech was delivered uh, on Tuesday, December 20th. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, Ayomi Azikawe. Uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the music of uh, Phyllis Hyman uh, with the track entitled Love Too Good to Last. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and we're here uh, this Saturday, December 24th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we're going to listen right now uh, to a recent briefing uh, by the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, at the African Union. And uh, these uh, briefings provide a public health uh, status update uh, on uh, the 55-member African Union member states and uh, also um, how Africa relates to the international community as it relates to scientific research, health care services, etc. Let's listen in. This is the Pan African Journal, or Worldwide Radio. 9095377791. It is plus 2519095377791. But you can also use uh, the QA session uh, section on the Zoom platform, and, or thirdly, you can use uh, the raise hand icon to join us live and uh, ask your question directly to the director and please kindly mention your name and your situation when you're, uh, that you're representing before asking your question. So colleague, uh, without further delay, let me welcome Dr. Ahmed Obwe-Uma, the acting director of Africa CDC for today's brief, uh, briefing. Thank you director for uh, uh, making your time again today. We know that uh, all of us are t- going into our uh, holiday, but you wanted also to have this last briefing to update uh, the journalists. Over to you, Dr. Ahmed. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, promise. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're joining us from. And thank you for um, uh, taking time off uh, these last days of uh, 2023. Uh, to join us um, uh, here. Uh, Promise we can hear you if you can mute. Um, So uh, this is going to be the last briefing for uh, 2023. It it has been um, a heavy year, very momentous in many ways, and uh, we are very grateful that we have managed uh, to reach uh, this stage in a way that uh, has protected and safeguarded uh, the continent's uh, health security. And with your support, it has been made uh, possible. So we are going to meet again very early in the new year. 
um, uh, but for this year, this is going to be the last update uh, that uh, will be coming from Africa CDC, a live update. We will continue to engage with you using all other platforms, but in terms of a live update, uh, this will be the last one. So today I would like to structure our conversation into four. Um, first is I'll speak about the major public health events here on the continent. Then I'll speak about the outcomes of the international conference uh, on public health in Africa that we held last week in Kigali. Uh, third, I will give an update on the youth advisory team that um, uh, I have established. And uh, finally, I'll give you some takeaway messages um, particularly now that we are going into the holiday season. Starting with the major public health events on the continent, we are currently having, during this uh, past week, uh, at least 105 different outbreaks um, uh, on, the con uh, on the continent, some small, some big. We are actively following up um, at least a dozen of them, uh, because of the nature of um, the pathogens and also um, the potential risk that um, they have. And uh, today I will share five of the top ones, uh, which are uh, really public health events of concern uh, that we would like the public uh, to be uh, actively aware of. Uh, first is uh, COVID, and then second will be uh, Ebola virus outbreak in Uganda. Third will be MPOX. Um, fourth will be cholera, and we'll focus a little bit on Malawi. And fifth will be Lassa fever. Again, this is a multi-country outbreak across the continent. So we start with COVID, and really it's a reflection of where we, we've, how far we've come in the context of the growing numbers of COVID, both uh, in terms of those being laboratory diagnosed, those who are um, being hospitalized due to serious illness, and those uh, who are losing lives across the world. Um, we have not seen that similar situation here on the continent of Africa, and we remain very vigilant uh, to the growing surges in COVID-19 elsewhere in the world. Here on the continent, from the beginning of this pandemic, we have documented just over 12.1 million COVID cases, which is about 2% of the total number of cases that are being reported uh, globally. We, at the same t uh, during the same period, have um, documented recoveries, just over 11.5 million, which means 95% of the total number of cases that have been reported here in Africa have recovered. It translates to um, 95 people recovering out of every 100 cases, which is quite um, a good for a continent like ours that had been uh, uh, predicted uh, to suffer a lot from the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic. Unfortunately, we have lost 256,470 uh, people here on the continent, which gives us a case fatality rate of 2.1%, um, uh, really um, much higher than uh, uh, we would want losing two people out of every 100 cases that are being reported on the continent. It's not something that we uh, would like. We would like to have that less. Um, these number of deaths uh, account for just over 4.1% of the number of deaths due to COVID uh, globally. It's also important to reflect um, that um, uh, COVID has affected our countries on the continent differently. And when you look at the top five uh, countries, by number of cases reported, 
we see that these top five countries account for 60% of all the COVID-19 cases that have been reported uh, on the continent of Africa from the beginning of the pandemic. And um, as a recap, since we are coming to the end of uh, uh, this year, South Africa accounts for 33% of the total number of cases, just over 4 million. Morocco, 10% of the total cases, uh, about 1.2 million. Tunisia, um, 9% of the total number of cases at about 1.1 million. Egypt and Libya, each with 4%, um, just over 500,000 cases uh, for, those, uh, to, uh, for each of those two countries. So it is South Africa with 33%, Morocco 10%, Tunisia 9%, Egypt 4%, and Libya 4%. These are the top five countries that account for 60% of all the cases that we have seen uh, on the continent. Now, looking back, um, using the one week, uh, which is week 50, that week is uh, between 12th and 18th of uh, December 2022, and then we compare it with epidemiological week 49, which was 5th to 11th of December, we see that a total of 5,043 new cases have been documented during epi week 50 here in Africa. And this is a 4% decrease um, when we compare with the previous week. Um, all regions have really uh, shown um, um, stabilization, if you want, in the numbers of, of the new cases, and that's why we are seeing a decrease in um, uh, the number of new cases for AP Week 50, uh, 50 compared to AP Week 49. But when we also look in detail at this number of new cases, we see that uh, the following five countries are reporting the largest numbers, and that is South Africa with 1,341, Ethiopia with 964, Zimbabwe 819, Morocco 659, and Kenya uh, 254. So um, the increase in, uh, of, during AP Week 50 has spread out quite evenly uh, when you look at the most affected countries uh, on the continent. Unfortunately, during this same uh, period, Epi Week 50, we have seen a total of 60 new deaths, that is six zero new deaths. And this represents a 39% decrease from the previous week, uh, Epi Week uh, 49. When we do the longer analysis of four weeks, we see that um, there has been an overall 13, that is one 3% average decrease in the number of new cases being reported uh, here on the continent for that four-week analysis. And when we look at the number of deaths over the same period of four weeks, there has been a 41% average increase uh, during these four weeks. But I must hasten to add here that uh, due to batch reporting um, from some countries, uh, that's why we are seeing this spike in uh, the increase in the number of uh, deaths. But we continue to analyze uh, and carefully look at uh, our data that is being reported from our member states uh, to see if there is any real uh, cause uh, for uh, uh, concern there. We continue to uh, also monitor the surge in numbers from other parts of the world uh, to, and because we are so interconnected and this is the holiday season, we want to be sure that we remain very alert uh, to anything uh, that's happening anywhere in the world because no one is safe until everyone is safe. So in the context of um, uh, this new surge, we are actually enhancing support to our member states 
for uh, surveillance, particularly at the community level, because uh, the holidays are here. Uh, so we are strengthening our uh, surveillance systems uh, around the continent, but also encouraging our member states to strengthen their surveillance systems, particularly at the community level. We've also um, uh, reissued our guidance on uh, public health and social measures uh, for the continent and asking our member states to upgrade their own um, uh, frameworks so that member, uh, the members of the public can be informed on what to do and what not to do in the context of uh, the surges that we are seeing uh, elsewhere in the world. Third, we are increasing our support for genomic surveillance. We want to know this surge, is it, does, it, does it have anything to do with uh, uh, any new variants or uh, any new subtypes uh, of the variants um, that, that would mean that we change the way in which we approach um, uh, the, uh, the pandemic? So our laboratories and experts are in full swing um, doing, uh, um, doing a sequencing for all uh, relevant samples based on the protocols that we've established. So it is something we are closely, closely watching uh, to ensure that the continent, the continent remains safe. When we look at COVID-19 vaccines update across the continent, uh, we now have 1 billion and 76 million vaccine doses that have been delivered to 54 of our member states. And out of these, we have administered 856 million, which corresponds with 79.6% of the total number of vaccines supplied uh, to the continent. When we look at coverage, as I have uh, mentioned uh, uh, in the last uh, three or so um, uh, briefings, that we have uh, shifted our uh, denominator to the eligible population. Uh, here in Africa, um, we have uh, picked 12 years and above as the eligible, eligible populations for COVID-19 vaccination, and we are now aiming all our efforts at ensuring that this happens with some um, uh, specifics which I shall explain shortly. One is we want 100% of our health workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19. They're in the front line. They see um, uh, every uh, uh, patient that comes um, within the health facility, and we want them fully protected. Uh, because right now, our strategy has shifted, and now we are doing testing and treating. Um, because um, the active uh, community surveillance that we used to do before, you know, uh, looking for contacts and uh, lockdowns, ETC, that season is finished because of the vaccine is available and some treatments are also available. And so we are shifting to focus on uh, particular interest groups within the community. And health workers is number one. We want all health workers to be fully vaccinated across the continent. Second are the dual populations of those above 60 and those with comorbidities. Comorbidities means people with other illnesses that usually uh, reduce uh, immunity. These two groups, we want also 100% of them to be vaccinated. Everyone who is above 60 should get their COVID-19 vaccination. Everyone who has a comorbidity, whatever their age, um, they also need to be vaccinated against COVID-19. We are trying to protect the vulnerable from getting exposed uh, to uh, serious uh, effects of uh, COVID-19. Um, uh, for the rest of the population, our target is still 70%. And looking at the target population of uh, 12 plus, we see that the fully vaccinated coverage on the continent today is 41.77%. 
um, of this target uh, population. And this corresponds with uh, uh, just over 388 million people on the continent that have now been fully uh, vaccinated. So again, 12 plus uh, years uh, population, um, 41.77% have been fully uh, vaccinated. When we look at um, uh, the, the number of boosters, because um, countries are um, boosting uh, those who are willing to go for uh, their third or fourth uh, shots, we see that um, the number of boosters today stand at 3.22% of the eligible population, and this translates to 43.3 million um, vaccine doses that have been given as boosters. When we look closely at the last um, week, there has been a 3.97% increase in the number of um, uh, those who are fully vaccinated, and this translates to just over 14.8 million doses that have been administered uh, in the last week. So we are making some very, very good progress uh, in this regard. When we look at our countries um, who have reached that target of 70 plus for um, the target population of 12 years and above, uh, we are happy to report that there are 12 of our member states that have actually reached um, this target. And these include uh, Tanzania, uh, Seychelles, Mauritius, Botswana, Rwanda, Comoros, Liberia, Cabo Verde, Morocco, Zambia, Somalia, and Mozambique. These are 12 countries on the African continent who have reached uh, 70% of the target population um, uh, within their own borders. So going forward, um, what we are doing with our, with our member states is analyzing where the success, what has resulted in success. And some of the key things that we are seeing um, uh, that have re resulted in success is um, when we do mass campaigns. Um, when we do mass campaigns, there's a lot of uptake, uh, which tells us that the African population is still willing to be vaccinated so long as the vaccines reach them easily uh, where uh, they are. And um, apart from mass vaccinations, we are also now uh, starting to actively work with the youth. Um, and um, you will recall we launched our Bingwa initiative. We have our Bingwas from across the continent, and we have been tested, intensified in uh, countries where the vaccination is still low, and we are seeing the result of that, with the Bingwas being out there actively engaging with their communities and resulting in better uptake uh, for um, uh, um, uh, COVID-19 vaccination uh, coverage. In fact, uh, we are seeing that where our member states have done some uh, uh, special programs for um, uh, the youth, then the uptake has actually gone up. We therefore recommend very strongly uh, to members of the public um, uh, that this season um, of, the, of the holiday, when there's a little bit of time um, away from work, get vaccinated. All vaccines that we have uh, passed are good, so take the vaccine that is nearest to you during this holiday season so that you can protect yourself and others who are around them, uh, yourself, well, around you as well. For those who are eligible, please get your booster shot. It is important that we increase the immunity as we go along so that you're much better protected, um, especially if the boosters are already being offered uh, by our governments and most 
um, um, of our member states are actually actively um, offering uh, booster doses. So get your shot, get your booster, stay safe uh, this holiday season is a message that I would like to give uh, to our members uh, of the public. The second public health event that I would like to share today is the Ebola virus outbreak in Uganda. Uh, this is the Sudan um, type, and um, I'm happy to report uh, once again that there is no new confirmed case or death of the Sudan, uh, the, the, the Sudan um, uh, strain of uh, Ebola virus um, that is, uh, has caused the outbreak in Uganda. Um, it has now been about 25 days since the last confirmed case was uh, reported, and uh, this is a good indication that this outbreak is being brought under control. We are not saying it is over yet, but when we are at day 25, um, we are counting down uh, and hopefully we will reach um, uh, 10th of January, uh, which will then be um, the bordershed uh, date. Uh, if there are no new cases, um, the government of Uganda will then consider what new message they will be able to give to members of the public, the continent, and the world at large. We are day 25 without any new case, without any new death. But cumulatively, we have seen 142 confirmed cases. We have also documented 55 confirmed deaths uh, across nine districts in Uganda. Unfortunately, we have, out of all these cases, 19 are health workers. That makes 14%. And seven of the dead are also health workers, and that makes uh, 13% of the dead. Um, it is a situation that we would really like to avoid uh, because our health workers are in the front line, putting themselves at risk uh, to ensure that you and me are safe, and we would like to keep them safe as well. All the known contacts um, of all the cases uh, in Uganda have all completed their 21 days of follow-up, and um, uh, that also strengthens um, our um, uh, counting down uh, towards uh, January uh, at the 10th. The government in Uganda has also lifted uh, the curfew and the movement restrictions, particularly in the two epicenter districts of Kasanda and Mubende. Um, and um, we are uh, glad that um, members of the public have been very, very supportive uh, despite the difficulties of uh, travel restrictions, movement restrictions, and even curfews. Uh, meanwhile, um, the government, um, through the Ministry of Health and with support from Africa CDC and other partners, have improved engagement with the community. Um, surveillance is continued um, in the high-risk uh, districts. Uh, communities are being engaged uh, so that we have dignified and safe burials in all the high-risk districts, um, including mandatory testing of all dead bodies, regardless of the cause of death, just to be sure that there is nothing hiding um, within um, one death uh, uh, to the other. Um, we have also improved follow-up of survivors uh, so that they know how to handle um, uh, this situation of uh, uh, being a survivor of uh, an Ebola uh, infection. Uh, we want to make sure that all reservoirs have been addressed and uh, there is no opportunity for another outbreak uh, to catch us uh, when we are just in the tail end of this particular outbreak. As Africa CDC, we are providing concrete support. Um, right now, we have just started a training on mortality surveillance. How do we monitor deaths in the community? How do we document deaths in the community? How do we find out what the reason for those deaths in the community were? Very important for our, our context, especially 
um, uh, where some cultures demand that a uh, burial is done quickly. We want to be sure that uh, we have good knowledge of how to track um, uh, these community deaths through uh, this uh, training for mortality surveillance. Um, secondly, is um, uh, we are uh, training laboratory staff um, across um, uh, the country so that they can be able to do proper sample collection. They handle it well uh, during transport, and they take care of all the biosafety and biosecurity um, uh, requirements uh, so that everybody is safe. We also continue to work in the in the communities with village health teams supported by Africa CDC, um, continuing to uh, provide information to the affected areas and uh, the high-risk uh, districts uh, to make sure that everyone sense of um, uh, uh, the need to protect each other is, is, uh, remains high. I would also like to share a little bit um, of an update on the clinical trials. Um, the um, uh, two of um, uh, the candidate vaccines um, have been um, uh, cleared for use, um, and that is the Sabine Vaccine Institute, uh, the candidate vaccine from Sabine Institute and NIH, as well as the one from the University of Oxford. The one from Mark Ayavi is also undergoing the finalization of uh, a regulatory process, and uh, we are looking forward to all uh, three um, uh, different vaccine candidates uh, be undergoing clinical trials uh, in Uganda. And we'll await the minister to appraise us on where um, uh, that process has reached. The third public health event of concern is a multi-country mpox outbreak. You will recall that um, uh, this outbreak, although it's in Africa, it has quickly spread to over 110 countries and territories globally. Uh, But the situation here on the continent is as follows. Since the last time that we had this briefing, a total of 45, 45 new confirmed cases and 10 new deaths uh, of MPOX have been reported from particularly the DFC and Nigeria. This is a 105% increase in the number of new confirmed cases and a 43% increase in the number of new deaths when we compare to the last briefing. Um, uh, all the new confirmed cases Uh, That is the 45 were reported from Nigeria, while uh, all the new deaths, 10, were reported from the DSC. So cumulatively for MPOX, we have 1,176 confirmed cases and uh, 209 uh, deaths uh, from this particular outbreak across 13 of our member states. And um, uh, really, um, it is a situation where we see one in every five confirmed cases has actually been lost, um, something that uh, we regret, and we are trying to ensure that uh, does not continue to happen uh, through working with the government uh, uh, to improve surveillance and uh, management of uh, cases when they have been identified. Uh, and also, uh, <clears throat> we are finalizing vaccines for MPOX so that they can be able to be delivered, and our priority is going to be healthcare workers, at-risk population, um, uh, including contacts, uh, close contacts of those um, who have had MPOX. Um, uh, so this is being finalized, and uh, we'll be able to let you know when we begin uh, shipment and eventually um, uh, country-level uh, vaccination against MPOX. Fourth is cholera outbreak. Um, since the last briefing, we have documented 1,692 new cases. Um, we have also seen 43 new deaths as a result of cholera, particularly 
from Kenya and Malawi. Those are the highest numbers. Cumulatively from the beginning of this outbreak, we have seen 83,150 cases. And um, we've also unfortunately documented 1,565 deaths from 14 uh, of our Africa Union uh, member states. And this translates to the continent is losing one person out of every 10 uh, cholera uh, cases. Now, we want to just focus a little on Malawi today. On the 5th of December, His Excellency, the President of Malawi, Dr. Lazarus Makazi Chakwera, declared that uh, the cholera situation in Malawi was a national public health emergency. And this galvanized all of us, including other partners, to actively support uh, Malawi to bring this under control. Since the last briefing that we had, 1,091 new confirmed cases um, have been documented in Malawi and 45, 41 new deaths um, in um, uh, 21 uh, um, of uh, the affected districts. This represents a 19.19% increase in the number of new cases and a 70.70% increase in the number of new deaths. Uh, this is not a good situation and uh, we are working very hard to bring it uh, under control. Um, so for Malawi specifically, it means that we are losing one person out of every 33 cholera cases, and the majority of the deaths are due to very late presentation at the facilities. Um, uh, and it has been attributed to many cultural and religious um, uh, beliefs. Uh, that's why people are coming late, and we are working with our social scientists to ensure that we have good community engagement to reduce the number of deaths, to encourage early presentation to the health facility, and therefore interrupt transmission. You will recall that um, all this started during a tropical storm, Anna, and a cyclone, Gombe, that hit um, the southern part of Africa, particularly Malawi, uh, quite uh, significantly. And therefore, access to uh, safe water, sanitation, and hygiene has been uh, quite a big challenge. In total, though, 14 member states have been affected across uh, the continent. And um, uh, although Malawi is the one that we focused on today, and uh, there's a lot of work that is going on to strengthen a response, um, uh, Kenya uh, has deployed um, uh, its uh, teams as well um, for rapid response, and we are working very closely with them in uh, building capacity uh, to ensure that um, uh, the outbreak is brought under control as quickly as possible. We are training the environmental uh, officers for water quality. Uh, we are training the health workers for surveillance and management. Uh, we have procured uh, wash commodities, that is water hygiene and sanitation communities, and we are also providing technical support to strengthen all aspects of preparedness and response uh, to cholera for Kenya as well as for Malawi. The final um, public health event of uh, concern that I would like to share today is Lassa fever. Since the last brief, 159, 159 new cases um, have been reported with two new deaths, and that's a, ca a case fatality rate of about 1.3% for Lassa fever. This is a 38% increase, 38% increase in the number of uh, new cases and uh, a 50 percent decrease in the number of uh, new deaths compared to the previous briefing uh, that we had. Cumulatively, during this um, uh, uh, year, we have seen 9,235 cases with 222 deaths, giving us a cumulative case fatality rate of 2.4% uh, for Lassa fever. 
reported from seven of our member states, particularly in uh, the Western Africa region and to some extent uh, some few countries in Southern Africa um, uh, as well. In response, what we have done is uh, we've mobilized a group of partners uh, in a, a very multi-sectoral way uh, to ensure that we are coordinating our support to the most affected countries and that we continue to work very closely with the affected countries as we monitor the situation. So this, uh, these are the public health events of concern that I wanted to share with you today. Secondly is um, about the, con the International Conference of Public Health in Africa. This year's conference um, brought together over 2,500 scientists, policymakers, public health stakeholders from all our 55 member states of the Africa Union. All of them were represented in Kigali last week. We are also very pleased to note that um, in total, we had 90 countries represented globally, and that means 55 are from Africa and um, the other uh, 35 um, who are from elsewhere in the world. We are very pleased that it was a totally, completely global representation. We are also very pleased that 87% of the participants, 87% were actually African, from Africa. And this is excellent news. The intention of this platform was to provide a space where our public health specialists, scientists, policymakers, partners can be able to come and have a very serious dialogue how to safeguard Africa's health. And you can see 87% of the participants were actually uh, from uh, Africa. It was an excellent, excellent um, uh, conference, nine tracks, 34 conference sessions spanning across many topics from digitization to health of women and um, uh, leadership um, uh, in, in health. And we had 165 speakers and moderators 50 oral um, presentations, um, and 175 uh, poster presentations. We had 59 side events over the, the conference period, all of them showcasing different aspects of public health, leadership, and research. So we are very pleased uh, with the outcome of that conference. We were also very honored for the Prime Minister of Rwanda to open the, the event uh, formally, and we also heard from many African ministers uh, of health, um, in fact, even um, agriculture as well, and IT, uh, education, they were all participating in different high-level uh, sessions uh, to elevate Africa's leadership in public health um, uh, in this day uh, and age. So the conference has been a huge success. We are putting together the outcomes, and we'll share that with you in the coming, in the, in the new year, so that you all can be able to see um, uh, just how uh, engaging the conference was and the key outcomes that we as Africa CDC have committed to support implementation of. Third is uh, I would like to update you on the Africa CDC's youth advisory team. Um, at the meeting, um, I made a commitment that I was going to form uh, a small advisory group of youth uh, to advise the Director General of Africa CDC on the best ways of engaging with the youth to improve uh, the health outcomes on the continent. Uh, we've had a huge amount of interest. My intention was to announce this at the conference, but it was not possible because of the huge amount of interest. Out of the 200 eligible youth who participated in the youth pre-conference, um, we are now filtering um, those numbers. We have reached uh, um, just about a dozen, and I intend to cut that down further 
um, uh, to ensure that we get a small group representative of all our regions, representative of all the genders, um, uh, to ensure that we have a good team uh, that is going to advise me uh, in the coming um, year uh, on issues of engaging the youth in uh, uh, public health uh, matters. So this I'll be announcing uh, into the new year. And um, this uh, brings me to the end of, our, of my uh, submission, and I promise uh, I take it back to you uh, for any questions that um, uh, may, we may have from uh, the participants. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Ahmed, for your very extensive briefing today. And uh, let's now move into our Q&A session. But before uh, I take the first question, let me again uh, remind my colleague on how we can send your question. Uh, we can use our WhatsApp number. As I say, it's uh, plus two five one nine zero nine five three seven seven nine one. You can also uh, send your question using the Q and A se uh, section, and you can also raise your hand to join us live to ask your question. Uh, so let me uh, take the first question that I received here so far from Dr. Ahmed. Uh, I'm trying to open the questions. There is a question that we have here, Dr. Ahmed, for, from Justin Grief from Bloomberg. Justin is asking, tell us, Dr. Ahmed, what new information you have about the Ebola vaccine trial ongoing in uh, Uganda? I know you mentioned it and when you talk about the clinical trial. But I don't know if you can also make any other further comment on to this question. And the second question, uh, still on the topic of vaccine, this is from Kara uh, Anna from uh, Associated Press. Kara uh, is asking about mm. this, uh, the vaccine, not on uh, Ebola, sorry, it's uh, on monkeypox. Has the monkeypox vaccine donated uh, by Canada a few weeks ago being distributed to member states? If yes, if yes, which specific country have received uh, so far? Thank you, Dr. Med. If you can answer those two questions. Uh, thank you, Promise. And uh, Justine, for uh, the Ebola uh, Sudan type uh, vaccine trials in Uganda, um, I had given a, a brief about that earlier in my uh, submission, and um, we are awaiting uh, field. Uh, work to begin uh, because uh, the doses are now in Uganda and uh, the minister should be making the announcement uh, in the course of today uh, when the actual uh, community um, work in these clinical trials will be able to begin. So let's just um, uh, wait on that a bit until uh, the minister uh, makes that announcement. Um, CARA MPOX vaccines um, we have received um, donations from the Republic of Korea, and uh, we are in the process of finalizing uh, distribution of those uh, particular uh, vaccines. Uh, for other partners, including uh, the European uh, Union through their agency, HERA, uh, as well as the U.S. government uh, through um, they are responsible agencies. We are in the finalization of discussions uh, for uh, additional doses for uh, MPOX. Uh, and as soon as Welcome back. 
and uh, that was the African uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, weekly briefing uh, from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, at uh, the African Union headquarters. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit uh, on this day, uh, Saturday, December 24th, uh, 2022. And if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music, classic jazz music of Tad Dameron and Fast Navarro live at the Royal Roost in 1948. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Ladies and gentlemen, with our theme, Jumping with Symphony Sid, done by the Tad Dameron Group, we bring you and bring our microphones right down here to the Royal Roost, Metropolitan Opera House, here at 1580 Broadway, between 47th and 48th Street, where the lights are low, the music with that real knockout groove, and the people wonderful. Right now, I'd like to introduce to you the gentlemen of the Tad Dameron Organization. Tad Dameron, wonderful musician, one of the greatest in small group jazz. Here he is. Let's give him a great big hand. Tad Dameron, ladies and gentlemen... And not to waste not to waste too much time, let's bring to you a few of the other gentlemen. On on trumpet, one of the greats of all time, Fats Navarro. Fats Navarro, ladies and gentlemen. And on tenor, on tenor, a wonderful guy, Alan Eager. Alan Eager, ladies and gentlemen. And then of course, it's uh, Kenny Russell on bass and Kenny Clark on drums. Let's give them all a great big hand. And here's one of the great things that you always ask for when you call in the studio at Circle Six, two five hundred, the all night all frantic show, the Squirrel.
a lot, ladies and gentlemen, and that was a squirrel. Well, here's one you always ask for. It was arranged originally by the great Dad Dameron, one that Dizzy made, and I hope you enjoy it. Good bait.
Let's bring back the great Tad Dameron organization, ladies and gentlemen. Tad Dameron, the wonderful thing, one you ask for very often, a thing called anthropology. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring Pancho back again. Pancho Kenny Hager to do Kitchenette Across the Hall, a real novelty thing, one I hope you really enjoy. Pancho, it's all yours. Mm -hmm. 
met her in a grocery store. She was buying groceries galore. To my surprise, I found she lived next door in the kitchen at across the hall. Next morning, many thanks to say. I had to wait because the bus was late. I kept thinking how she looked at With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.